Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back with you as well. This morning, uh, as the scripture has already been read for us in the book of Galatians, I want to take you there. That's where we will spend our time together. First time I had the opportunity to be with you and to preach and teach God's word, we did it from Galatians because that's where I had it stopped as I was uh, doing an interim at a church. And uh, I'm already blessed by this book. Figured I would just continue to go through Galatians until I get through it. And uh, so I'm thankful for that opportunity to pick back up where I've left off as well. Galatians chapter 2, as it's been read, will close out the end of that chapter. Before we dig into this passage, uh, join me in prayer one more time for God's grace and the Spirit's illumination. Father, we are so dependent upon you for everything. Our life, our breath, our salvation. We're grateful that you are our great shepherd and that you are intimately not only acquainted with our ways, but intimately involved in our life. You are the sovereign God, and we rejoice in that this morning. My prayer this morning, Father, is that I might be given grace to preach the unfathomable riches of your Son. That I might take a passage as beautiful as the one before us and Put your son on display, put your saving work of justification on display that we might leave here this morning with a greater confidence, not in ourselves, but in your son. His work, his sacrifice, your announcement that we who are sinners have been declared righteous, blameless and holy by you. So may you give grace, Father, to the speaker. That these words today might be your words. That these words today might be used to pierce hearts and to soften hearts and to renew minds. And that uh, sinners who don't know you, those who have not been declared by you as holy and righteous and just, may this morning, by the moving of your spirit, may their hearts be opened as Lydia's heart was opened to the preaching of Paul. That they might receive the blessing of salvation, the blessing of forgiveness through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Give us much grace, we pray, for our hour together. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. You've probably heard the children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That little rhyme, that little saying was there to help children uh, as they encounter bullies, as they encounter people who give uh, verbal attacks against them. The truth of the matter is that uh, what people think and say about us does hurt us. It wounds us at times, causes great pain and has a tremendous impact on our lives. And though it shouldn't, it bothers us. Well, this morning, as we look at this section of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're faced with a reality in our lives that what people do say about us and what people say to us at times can easily keep us up at night. And it's even easier for us to not give much thought to what the Lord has said, what the Lord has announced, what the Lord has declared about us. 
We at times put more weight, more stock in what other people say than in what God himself has said about us. And so this morning in our time together, I want to I want to unpack the realities of this text. And I want to I want to unpack this truth that the justification of a sinner by the declaration of God is the most important thing that can ever be said about you. It's the most controversial belief in all of religion, and it is the most radical experience that could ever happen in your life. Justification. God declaring, God announcing, God making known that you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. A.W. Tozer in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, has said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. I think we could also say this morning that what comes into God's mind when he thinks about us is also important. We don't think about it that often, but the reality is what God thinks about us is extremely important. Because it will determine and reveal where it is that we will spend all of eternity. If God has declared us righteous, if God has declared us blameless, if God has declared us as never knowing him and being told that we are to depart forever into darkness and separation from him. This is about God's announcement, God's proclamation that we are in a right relationship with him. We cannot underestimate the importance of the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther and the Reformers spoke of it as the article upon which the church stands or falls. It is the gospel. It is God declaring us and making us holy in Christ. So this morning, I want to remind you of this. This judicial declaration of you being right in His sight if you put your faith in His Son. The heavenly announcement that all is well. Between you and a holy God, the proclamation that you're not guilty of breaking God's law because he sees you now in Christ as being perfectly righteous. That though we deserve hell, that though we stand condemned as sinners, God has declared us no longer being under condemnation. The Bible again and again speaks of this justification. It speaks of this right standing with God through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Romans chapter 3 is another one of those great passages we could spend a lot of time on. As Paul talks in verses 21 through the end of that chapter about the justification which comes by faith. And he reminds us that we have all sinned, verse 23, and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift. By His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith that was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, He says, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. This is extremely important for the people of God. I think even back to wonderful passages like in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, 
He'll see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and will bear their iniquities. You see it all over the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, of God declaring sinners who trust in him as being right in his sight because of their faith in him. And so this morning, as we look back at Galatians chapter 2 and close this chapter out, I want to look at it this morning kind of from three movements that are naturally broken up through the text. We're going to look at it from the hypocrisy of a saint. We're going to look at it, the justification of a sinner, and close it out with the life of the Savior. And we could more specifically say the life of the Savior in the life of a believer. Very important for us. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is the hypocrisy of a saint. The hypocrisy of a saint. Verses 11 through 14. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You can tell from just a surface reading of this that this is a very dramatic portion of Scripture where Paul, an apostle called of God, separated to the gospel, is confronting Peter, the chief apostle, the, one, of the, one of the men who, who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ and was seen as one of the pillars in the early church. He confronts him. He confronts his hypocrisy. And he defends the gospel of grace, not from wolves, Not from attack from wolves, but rather from sheep from the inside. And more than sheep, a shepherd, a pastor, and more than that, an apostle. And he doesn't even do it behind closed doors. He does it not behind his back, but to his face. And not behind closed doors, but with all those there present. Because his sin was present in public. And he addressed it publicly and dealt with it because he saw the gospel He saw the justification of God by faith in Christ under attack and he moves in to deal with it and to address it. Peter had gone to visit Paul there in Antioch and while he was there, he was enjoying the fruits of the gospel. He was enjoying something that for a long time Jews were forbidden to do and that was Gentile fellowship. And not only Gentile fellowship, but but Gentile cuisine. Getting to enjoy the foods of the Gentiles once that were forbidden to the people of God. Now because of the work of Christ, now because of the cross, freedom to enjoy both. And Peter was enjoying (coughs) this fruit that was once considered unclean to do so. If you remember in the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus talks about it's not what goes into the mouth that makes you unholy. It's what comes out of your mouth and it speaks of the heart and it speaks of uh, the evil that's within us. And in that passage, he specifically says, Jesus saying what he said, 
declared all foods clean. We know through the sacrifice of the sacrifice of Christ that his atoning death brought with it a complete fulfillment to God's law. And even in the lesson that was given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, where Peter goes up on the roof to pray, falls into a trance. The Lord reveals by lowering the sheet with the animals and says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God reminds him, God tells him, God teaches him what I have cleansed. Don't call that which is unholy. God was specifically working in Peter's life to help him with something that was no doubt difficult. And as we see this, Paul addresses him, opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. Because in verse 12, as these these Jewish legalists or Judaizers or these people that were still uh, the false brethren, whoever they may have been that had come in, (coughs) excuse me, they began to withdraw. Speaking of a strategic military withdrawal, he backed out. He retreated when he saw them because he was fearful of the party of the circumcision. We know from what he did here, it offered a devastating blow to what Paul had been teaching. He alienated his new Gentile brothers. I mean, can imagine seeing Peter there enjoying this Gentile fellowship. The circumcision party comes in and Peter gets up out of fear and leaves his his Gentile brothers alienates them, cuts them off. He also influenced the other Gentile brothers who were believers. For it even said in verse 13 that the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. And if that wasn't enough, Paul's right-hand man Barnabas also got carried away and swept away by their hypocrisy in verse 13. The influence of this apostle The influence of this shepherd, the influence of this great man of God who wrote Holy Scripture is very influential and we see the impact of it here. For he says in verse 14 that when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, literally, we we can get our word orthopedic from. It's, It's the idea of ortho being straight and pideo, which speaks of the foot, when he saw that they were not walking straight, when they were not walking rightly, he addressed it. They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, and he said to them all, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how is it that you can compel them to live like you? How could you do that? They had veered off and entered the ditch theologically. By the grace of God, Paul, God uses Paul to bring them back. Because what he was declaring when he did that was that you still had to be under Jewish dietary laws in order to be right with God. Again, undermining the work of the gospel, undermining the work of justification by faith. So we see the hypocrisy this morning of a dear saint. Before we move on, let me just remind you of a few encouraging points. Number one, the greatest of saints can also sin. Even our greatest heroes, people we hold in high esteem, pastors, teachers, theologians, even the most godly of saints, they sin. They stumble. One of my great heroes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, reminded people that that's just what he was, was a forgiven sinner. 
the greatest of God's saints sin. I also see great grace in this passage. Great grace because we see the Lord at work in Peter's life. To get those remaining blind spots out of his life. Those remaining points of weakness. Those, those, those things that might impede him from being useful. The Lord doesn't just leave him where he's at. But weans him away from these old Jewish habits that were no doubt hard to break. It's a great act of grace. And the Lord does it in our lives as well, doesn't he? That he who began a good work in you and I, he will finish it. He will complete it. Though we fight, though we resist, though we're lazy, our God has promised to do this. And I think Peter gets the lesson. This book of Galatians being written before Peter penned his letter. In 1 Peter 2.1, when he calls us, he says, put aside all hypocrisy. Peter says, put aside all hypocrisy. And receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. He recognized the need to cast off and put off all hypocrisy. Secondly, the justification of a sinner. The justification of the sinner. This is the theological thrust of this text. Verse 16, he says, nevertheless, or backing up to verse 15... We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, I mean, we are God's people. We are the Hebrew nation. We are the Jewish people. We were given a law. We of all people know what it is to live by the law, not the Gentiles who are considered sinners and seen as not being in that relationship with the Lord. Nevertheless, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. This is probably one of the most important theological statements in all of Holy Scripture that salvation is by grace. Through faith in Jesus. And it doesn't depend on us. It's not about our walking. It's not about our running. It's not about our efforts. It's not about our our godly behavior. It's not about our good outweighing the bad. It's about Christ. And the righteousness of Christ. Given to us by faith. From the living God. And I think it's interesting that. And the reason I made that statement of how important it was, because look at how often he repeats it here. In in some form or fashion or another, he repeats it three times in kind of similar but different ways as he goes through the text. I remember when our children were growing up and we had access to a cul-de-sac. Our children would go out into that cul-de-sac and they would play. And and you could hear parents all over from different driveways hollering, car. And all the kids would kind of scatter and run to, to uh, get out of the road so the car could come through. And we had to teach them at a very early age that I should only have to tell you one time. Because if we have to tell you a second time or a third time to get out of the road, it may be too late. And we had to coach them and teach them that they needed to respond to our commands right away. First time. It was that important. Paul gives great grace here. 
And in three separate occasions gives a thrice holy repeat of this great truth of justification by faith. He says it the first time, nevertheless, not knowing that a man, knowing that a man is not in the negative justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how a man is justified. But not by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. He says it a different way. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And now a third time, he really drives it home to show the absolute impossibility of being justified any other way. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh will ever be justified in any other way than faith in Christ. The justification of a sinner. God declaring you righteous, holy, above reproach, blameless in His sight is the most important declaration and announcement that can be said about you. It's the most controversial belief in all of religion and the most radical experience that could ever happen in your life. Let me break that down for you quickly. To have the infinite personal God who has the power and the authority to take your life and separate us and send us to hell. To kill the body and send the soul to eternal hell has declared us because of our faith in His Son only that we are righteous. That we are holy. There's no other announcement that could be more important made about us than that we are right with God. Secondly, the justification of a sinner by God's declaration is also the most controversial belief in all of religion. For Christianity alone says that it's not dependent upon what you do. It's not dependent upon your works. It's not dependent upon you earning your salvation and your forgiveness. It's Christ. John MacArthur describes it specifically as Christianity being the the religion of divine accomplishment, that God has already accomplished it for us. And that all of the other religions of the world are completely different, for it's left up to you to make sure that you get there. Some add mixtures of faith and some say it's all you. I've had times where cults have knocked on my door and tried to present to me What they declared was the saving message of the truth of the scriptures. And as I would give them an opportunity to talk and I would ask them questions, trying to draw out certain things so that I could then present the gospel to them. I remember on one particular instance having a conversation. In which they told me of how they lived in fear, because if they had sin in their heart and they stepped out into the street and got hit by a car. That they had no confidence and no hope that they would be with God when they died. And I said, that's no religion I want. That's no religion that I want. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is is that because of what God has declared about me. Through my faith in His Son, who was always perfect and 100% holy and blameless. I will always and eternally be safe. Holy. And righteous in his sight. For my salvation and your salvation doesn't lie in what we do. But what Christ has done for us.
The justification of a sinner by God's declaration is also the most radical experience that could ever happen to you. There's nothing more radical that's ever happened to me in my life than the salvation that I experienced when God justified me. God declared me righteous and holy and blameless in His sight. He gave me His Holy Spirit. He united me to His Son by faith. And my life has been drastically changed. We were laughing on the way over here as I was making a comment driving through Nashville traffic that I'm a multitasker, which I'm not. I said, I'm a multitasker. I can do this. And the joke came up of, uh, you know, I struggle to do one task. And the blessing and the reality of, of, of salvation and the transformative effect of justification is even a man like that, a man like me, who can barely do one thing correctly, has to spit his gum out first, has been called to preach the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. That I am able to have the ability and the unction and the desire to stand up and organize biblical truth so that people can hear it and respond is an amazing thing. It's the grace of God in a sinner's life. And it's great news for the weak, for the guilty, for the sinful, for the desperate, and those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus Christ bears the full weight of our justification as He emphasizes there in this text. Now this next section of Scripture it's difficult. Verses 17 and 18. R.C. Sproul said this portion of the letter to the Galatians is not an easy one to expound. In fact, it's difficult and weighty. The great theologian and commentator Albert Barnes said the connection here is not very clear and the sense of the verse is somewhat obscure. And even the great scholar William Hendrickson said of this difficult passage, there are many interpretations. This is one of those passages as uh, an interpreter, as a Bible student, as a pastor, you have to figure out where you fall. You have to say, okay, this is what all my heroes have said. This is what all the godly teachers and expositors have said. But what is it that I am convinced? And, and I'm going to give you what I believe to me to be the most contextual to what's happening in this passage. Because he says in verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified... In Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Let me say it again, just so you catch the difficulty that we're faced here. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, that is God declaring us righteous, announcing we're holy, that we're all forgiven, that we're not sinners, we ourselves have also been found sinners. That's kind of a confusing way to word something and I won't lie to you, I struggled with this. I grieved over this. I prayed about this. And I believe the Lord is gracious to provide me something that brought comfort to me. The point that I think he's saying is this, is that if while seeking to be justified in Christ, and that's what they were doing, that's what Paul was doing, that's what Paul was teaching, that's what Orthodox Christians do and teach, we are those who seek to be justified in Christ. Okay? We ourselves have also been found sinners. The reality is that if we are in that first group, if we are in that group that is seeking to be justified in Christ, the false teachers, the Judaizers, the false circumcision, the legalist will say you're a sinner because you also need to be 
following with circumcision and dietary rules and laws and not hanging out with Gentiles and not eating their food and all of these different laws and rules. Basically, in God's sight, you'll seek to be righteous if you seek to be justified in Christ. But in man's sight, they will declare you a sinner. And then he said, is Christ then a minister of sin? Can we put this blame on Jesus because he's the one who's declared all foods clean? He's the one that spoke of the mystery of the gospel that also included that God had invited the Gentiles into this salvation. Should we just blame him? May it never be. And he speaks of this. If I rebuild what I once destroyed. If I rebuild a salvation based on keeping the law. He says, then I prove myself to be a transgressor indeed. It makes sense to me. I can follow that. If we go back to trying to establish salvation by law, by keeping it, we're guilty of trying to rebuild a system that does not save and is not the gospel. And will indeed reveal us to be transgressors because salvation, as Paul has already stated, is not by works. It's through faith. Lastly, the life of the Savior or the life of a believer or the life of the Savior in the life of a believer. As you as we finish this text out, I, I want to draw your attention to what the emphasis seems to be here. He speaks in verse nine of through the law, I died to the law so that I might what live to God. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This passage of Scripture to me is phenomenal. It's one of those passages that we, we embroider it on cross stitch and put it on walls and frame it in pictures. And, and uh, it, it's one of those passages that just, that just stands out in bold in and of itself. It's not more inspired than any other passage of scripture for all of God's word is inspired, but it just kind of makes itself highlighted as we read it. And it jumps out at us and grabs a hold of us and really deserves a sermon and message all on its own. But he speaks about life here. He even speaks about death through dying to the law and being crucified with Christ. Martin Luther said this seems to be an extraordinary definition. That to live to the law is to die to God and to die to the law is to live to God. He said these two propositions are quite contrary to reason and therefore no clever philosopher and no law worker can understand them. But we do well to understand the true meaning of them. Those who live to the law, that is, who seek to be justified by obeying the law, are dead and condemned. The law cannot justify and save them, but accuses, terrifies, and kills them. Therefore, if you want to live to God, you must die to the law. But if you want to live to the law, you will die to God. To live to God is to be justified by grace through faith for Christ's sake without the law. You can try to earn God's favor and be united to his son, but it just will not 
work. Romans chapter 7, Paul highlights this. That our union with Christ has brought this death to the law. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law. How? He tells us. Through the body of Christ. So that you might be what? Joined and united to another. To Him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now... We have been released from the law. Released from it. Having died to that by which we were bound. So that we serve in the newness of the spirit. And not in the oldness of the letter. When Christ enters our life. God stops seeing us as a sinner. And he sees us as he sees his son. And he loves us. As he loves his son. What a union. What a privilege. And think of what he says here. I've been crucified with him. My sins were present at the cross. Your sins were present at the cross. So that when Christ was atoning for sin. Our sins were there. Being punished. God made him who knew no sin. To be sin on our behalf. So that the righteousness of God in him. Would be upon us. I've been crucified with Christ. He says it's no longer I who live. There is a greater life within you. Think of the reality of that. There's a greater life within you. Living. Functioning. And he says it again. But Christ lives in me. It's like he never got over that reality. That this was not something external. Think of a mother. For nine months, she carries in her womb a living being. And she protects and she nourishes and she cherishes and she takes care of that life. Knowing one day that it will grow up and be a, an adult. I remember with our first child, Reese, as she would be laying in bed in the middle of the night, I would wake up. And I would just reach over and just rub her belly and he would just come alive, wake her up. It was a living being in her body. But as that child came to its fruition and he came out and he grew, he grew up, he was an adult. That's, that's got to be an amazing experience to go through as a human being. But in this passage, Paul says, you want to know what's really awesome? Is that the living and holy God... The judge of the living and the dead. The one who created the world, the universe, and all that's in it. Lives in his son. In you. By faith. That in Christ, whom dwells the fullness of deity. Takes up residence in our lives. Christ lives in me. Christ in me, as he says in Colossians, the hope of glory. And he said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Listen to this sacrificial language. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
I think he drives home the point in this passage as he closes this section to really emphasize something important, no doubt, to Peter and the others. When he says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, if righteousness can come from some other means, if I can do something to earn my salvation, then Christ's death was a waste. Christ died needlessly. And I think it was statements like that inspired of the Holy Spirit that no doubt pained people's hearts who failed to recognize, who, who forgot, had a, had a lapse of reason and forgot about Christ. That his life and death was lived and died and he was raised from the dead so that we could be justified by faith. Is that good news to you? I hope it is. Pray it is. Pray that God, if it's grown dull to you, has rekindled this morning a desire to appreciate and value highly the life and death and righteousness of Christ and that you can just rest. That someone has done it for you. Isn't that what Jesus said? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Don't you want that? So many people try so hard to to be a good person and to do enough good things to somehow earn God's love and favor. And Paul's already told us it's impossible. Because God is holy and you are not. But God has remedied that when he sent Jesus, fully man, fully God. To come, to be born of a virgin, to live under the law, to obey the law perfectly in our place. And to offer up a sacrificial life that God would say, I accept that. And when you put your faith and trust in that, and you are trusting that to make you right with God, God will declare, God will announce the most important thing that could ever be said about you on this earth. You are justified. You don't justify yourself. You're justified by God. Through faith in His Son. Let's pray. Father, how blessed we are to know You. How blessed we are to have Your Word. How blessed we are to know that What we need most, which is forgiveness and salvation and help, was fixed and remedied when you sent Christ into this world. The life that he lived was perfect, the death that he offered was perfect. We needed a high priest who was exalted above the heavens. Who is holy and blameless. And we have him in Jesus. Thank you for the gift. Of Christ. Not only being crucified with us. And us with him. But taking up residence in our lives. What an encouragement this is. And my prayer this morning father. Is for the people of God. That you might. Rekindle a passion and an appreciation for this in their lives. 
but also those who are here this morning and who are not in a right standing with you. Who because of their sin and lack of faith, they stand condemned. And if they were to die, they would be separated from you from all eternity. May you in great grace move upon them. Give them full knowledge and understanding of the things that have been said this morning. May they agree with them in their heart. May they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. And may you save them as they trust your Son and your Son only. It's Him we worship. It's Him we are thankful for. It's Him we are satisfied with. It's Him we praise. It's Him we honor this morning. 